Well, I'm sure you as a kid had some sort of childhood hero that you looked up to. We all kind of have at least someone that we do. Maybe for you is some fictional character or maybe it was a, a real life person. But for my, my son, the last couple years, one of those people that he's really looked up to and kind of admired is a baseball player uh, who plays for the New York Yankees. His name is Aaron Judge. Uh, it doesn't matter if you know who Aaron Judge is or not. Uh, he's just one of the best baseball players on the planet right now. Um, he's, uh, he's a really recognizable figure. He's like 6'8". He wears number 99. He plays right field for the Yankees. Just like a guy you can't miss. And for a four-year-old, like, somebody like that is amazing. He hits home runs all the time, like all the time, like a lot of home runs. He's just he's really good because he plays for the Yankees. So if you're not catching on, I, I do like the Yankees. So um, anyways, my, my son's really looked up to him so much so that his last birthday party, he was like, hey, Dad, should I invite Aaron Judge to my birthday party? I was like, well, yeah, you, you could. I mean... Trying to explain to him, like, I don't know if he'll come because he doesn't know you, uh, but he didn't quite understand that. But we went to uh, a, a Yankees-Angels game a couple years ago. This is kind of uh, pre-COVID. And, and we got there early. We wanted to check out batting practice, and we were kind of sitting on the right field side of the stadium, so we were close to Aaron Judge. So we got there early, and I took my son, and we walked all the way down and tried to get close to him for, for batting practice as he's standing in right field, like catching fly balls and warming up and all that. And of course, there's just a horde of people yelling at him for autographs. And I, I bring my son down, and I had built this up, like, we're going to see him. You're going to see him up close. It's going to be awesome. And we get down there, and it's just, he's so short, he can't see anyone, right? Because he's four years old. Everybody's standing, adults. And like, it's just, like, I, I'm like so disappointed, like, we can't see him. So I'm like, you know what? I'll put him on my shoulders. And so I put my son on my shoulders, and I'm like, this works great. And he's looking at Aaron Judge, and he's having so much fun. And it's batting practice, though, so there's balls flying everywhere. And all of a sudden, there's a ball that comes towards our area, and no one's really paying attention because everyone's looking at Aaron Judge. And I have this moment of, like, oh, this is really dangerous. I can't put my son on my shoulders because he might get hit with a ball coming like 100 miles an hour right in his face. So I got to take him off of my shoulders. And we just, you know, we backed up to like the next section and we could stand at a distance and watch. And it was this, this sad moment for me and for him of like, we wanted to be close. We wanted to see Aaron Judge, but we couldn't. It was too dangerous. And as we continue this morning in the book of John, I've mentioned that John, the author, he's writing to a heavily Jewish audience. And sometimes when we come to the Bible, we need to align our, our minds with the original audience of what would they have been thinking, what would they have been hearing. And his original audience would have had a lot of familiarity with the Old Testament, a lot of the, the scriptures up until the New Testament. They would have known them. And all throughout the Old Testament, there's this desire among God's people that, God, that God's people would, could see him. They wanted to see him. They wanted to know him. They wanted to be with him. They wanted to get back to what humanity had in the very beginning in creation, in the Garden of Eden, when, when God created everything and it was good and there was no sin, and God walked with Adam and Eve. He, he dwelled with them. They could hear his voice and be near to him and, and talk to him, and God dwelled with his people. And, and so all throughout the Old Testament, there's this desire to get back to that. How can we see God and know him again? But they were separated by sin, and so they, they couldn't. But simultaneously, there was this assumption, and it was a right one among people in, in the Old Testament, that if we could see God, it would actually just kill us. Because he's so perfect, and he's so holy, and he's all-powerful, and he's the creator, and we are sinful humanity that's rejected him and turned from him, and because of who he is and who we are, actually, if we did see him, we'd just die. And so there's this desire to see God... And yet there's this recognition that we can't, it's too dangerous for us. 
In the same way it kind of was for me and my son, God's people have wanted to see him all throughout the Old Testament, wanted to be close, but couldn't. It's been too dangerous. And we need to have kind of this understanding as we come to this passage today. And I want to give you an example from the Old Testament. If you have your Bible, you can flip back to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus 33, we see a moment like this where God's people want to see him. If you're familiar with the Old Testament story, you'll remember that this is after uh, Israel had been enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years, and then God delivered them out of Egypt. Finally, they were free. They were no longer enslaved to Egypt. They, they could follow God, and they were, they were in the wilderness, and, and God had rescued them. And Moses goes up a mountain to go talk with God. And while he's up there, he's taking too long. The people get really frustrated. So they collect all of their gold. They melt it down, and they craft a golden calf. And they say, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. This golden calf, let's worship this idol. And then Moses comes down from the mountain and rebukes them, of course, for their foolishness, for their idol worship. And then this is what happens next in Exodus chapter 33. Pick it up in verse 7. It'll also be on the screens. Now Moses, he used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. This is where God's presence would come down to meet with God's people. Verse 8, whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud, which is representative of God's presence, would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of clouds standing at the entrance of the tent, and all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you, that I have also found favor in your sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways. Show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, consider too, that this nation is your people. So he meets with God. God's presence comes down to, to meet with Moses, to give him direction, to speak to him. And Moses is saying this, hey, look, you brought us out of Egypt, but now we're just kind of here in the wilderness. And we, we know that you've kind of said you're going to go with us, but I don't know where we're going or what that's going to even look like. Can you just help me? Can you show me your ways? Can you show me who you are? Can I hear your voice? Can I see you? Because this is hard. He continues then in verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, this is God speaking, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, which is the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. 
And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And last he says in verse, uh, the next chapter, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So I want to bring us back to this moment because this is going to be impact where we are at in John this morning. Moses comes to meet with God and he says, God, I, I, I want to see you. Show me your glory. Let me see what you're like. Show me your power and your goodness. I want to see your glory. And God's like, I'd love to show it to you, but I can't because you'll die. Because I am God. I am holy. I am perfect and you are not. If, you, if I pour out all of my glory before you, it will overwhelm you and disintegrate you. But I'll show you a glimpse. And he puts him in the cleft of the rock and says, I'll put my hand over you and I'll pass by you. And then you'll see my back. You'll see a glimpse of my glory. This is what God does to show Moses. So with that background in mind, we come to John's words today. And John is telling us as he opens up this story about Jesus to introduce us to Jesus. He's telling us this, what we have in Jesus' coming is something spectacular. John wants to help us understand the grandness of what it means that Jesus came to earth. And he begins by talking about Jesus' identity, right? That's what we looked at last week, that Jesus is God. He's eternal. He's the creator of all things. He says, in him was life, that through him was made everything, that not anything made on earth was made without him making it. And that in him is light. He is the light of the world, the light that shines into the darkness. He is God. He starts with all of that. He wants us to understand that what God is doing in the coming of Jesus is far better, far more miraculous, far more glorious than anything he's ever done. In the coming of Jesus, God is coming close. In the coming of Jesus, God is revealing himself. He's making a way for us to be able to see him. He's showing his glory in a way that we can see it and not die. That's what John's telling us as we open up John 1. We're going to look at this, this morning mostly at verses 14 through 18. Verse 14 says this, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is what Jesus did. He dwelled with humanity. And what's really interesting with that background we just read in the book of Exodus, what this word literally says in the original language is to, to dwell with us literally means that, that the Word became flesh. Jesus became human and pitched his tent among us which is exactly what we just read about in Exodus 33. That God gave instructions for his people. It says, if you want my presence to come down with you, pitch a tent, we'll call it the tabernacle, and it'll be the tent of meeting where my presence comes down to be with you. And John picks up on that and says, when Jesus was born and came to earth, it was God pitching his tent among us. It was God bringing his presence to dwell among us in the person Jesus, to be with us. This is exactly what these Jewish readers would have heard when John said this. Now, it was incredible what God did in the Old Testament to make a way for his presence to come down in a tent, but it was limited. 
were only certain people that could go in there and meet with God in one place. And in the coming of Jesus, all of a sudden, so many people had access, access to the presence of God, access to God himself. In Jesus, God pitches a better tent and he comes as close as possible to us. He literally comes in our skin to be with us. Right? Where, where someone could actually hear the voice of God like in front of them. That could literally feel the touch of God. To look into the eyes of God. I don't know if you've ever thought about, like imagine what that would be like. If you could look directly into the eyes of God. To, to see him, to, to, to like see in his eye, like so much is expressed in our eyes, right? Like you could see what someone feels in their eyes, what they think, what they're like, like to see. Like the people had that as Jesus came and made his dwelling. You could see him, touch him, be with him, interact with him. And there's something revealed about God in this statement. It's that Jesus desires to be close. That God has a desire in him to be close to you. To not just be distant, to be far off, to just give you commands and just to judge you. That there is actually a longing inside of God's heart to be close to you. Physically, relationally, emotionally, he wants to be near. And so he comes. He comes near. He literally wants that. He's not like maybe some of others that you've known who've said that they don't want to be around you or they don't want you around. God's not like that. He came all the way to be with us. And in his coming, we see something that's never been seen like this. And John tells us, he says, the word became flesh made his dwelling among us. And now look at what we've seen. We have seen his glory. The very thing Moses asked for says, God, show me your glory. And God's like, ah, you'll die. John says, in Jesus' coming, we see God's glory. We literally got to see it with our eyes, the glory of God. Now, it's important, I, I think worthwhile just stop for a second and say, what is glory? What, is it, what does it mean that, that God has glory? What does it mean to see the glory of God? Well, God's glory is, is directly connected to his holiness. But then we say, well, well, what does it mean for God to be holy? Like we're just saying about a holy God, what, is, what exactly does it mean for God to be holy? And I think what, what we most often think about God being holy is he's perfect, right? He, he's never done anything wrong. He's, he's morally perfect. That's kind of the way we tend to use the word holy. Like sometimes we'll use it kind of in a sarcastic way of like, okay, you know, Mr. Mr. Holier than thou, right? Like you must be better than all of us because you don't mess up. Like we use it in that way. We use it in a moral sense. But the word holy is so much bigger than just morality. The word holy literally just means set apart, completely distinct and different. That there is no one like this. It's set apart. There's nothing like it. So God's pure, perfect morality is part of his holiness, but it's just one, it's just one piece. What it means for God to be holy is that in every possible way, he is distinct and better and different than anyone in all of existence. There is none like him. It, all of his divine attributes coming together, all of the fullness of who God is, is he's holy. He's utterly different, 
better, high above, no one like him. Doesn't matter what attribute you name, it's better than anyone else. That's what it means for God to be holy. And God's glory is the revealing of his holiness. It's when God takes his set-apartness and makes it visible for us. It's God's holiness shining through so that we can see it and say, wow, he's amazing. Right? This is actually what happens a lot. We, we experience this a lot. If you if just think for a moment, the, the most beautiful natural wonder you've ever seen. Maybe you've been to a national park. Maybe you created something amazing and you just think that's the greatest piece of creation I've ever seen. I don't know. My wife and I recently, we got to go uh, up to Canada and visit one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. It's called Banff National Park. Here's a picture of it. It's amazing. It looks fake. Wait for it. It's coming. There it is. That's like, a, like just, it literally looks like that. That's not like a filter. It's just, that's what it looks like. It's amazing. Like I've never seen water that color. It's just glorious, right? Think about your, the most beautiful place you've ever seen. We look at it and we say, it's incredible, right? But what makes something like this incredible? It's because we look at it and we say, there's nothing like that. That's, that's amazing. That's like all of that put together. It's like, I, I've just never seen anything like that. It's amazing. It's beautiful. In, in many ways, you're seeing the glory of the holiness of this place, right? It's set apartness. It's distinct. It's different. It's amazing. And it's glories on display. And really, it's God revealing himself through creation, right? But we, 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 we understand this concept. That's, that's what glory is. And so how have we seen Jesus' glory? John says he, he comes to earth and we've seen his glory. Well, how have we seen it? Well, in, in Exodus, God said to Moses, you want to see my glory? Okay, I'll make all of my goodness pass before you. God says, my, my glory is my goodness because I'm the only one that's good. There's actually no one on earth that's good. The most basic adjective like we have, right? Something is good, right? It's just kind of generic like, that's a good piece of bread. It's not great. It's not awesome. It's just good, right? We can't, the Bible says, we can't even claim that basic word good for ourselves. We like to think we can. We like to say, well, I'm a good person. And what we mean by that is we think we're better than some others, but not as worse as we could be, right? That if we weighed all of our actions, we probably have a little bit more good, a little bit more bad, which, first of all, is delirious. But, but second of all, that's not what it means to be good. We would never call someone who's like half of their life evil and breaking the law and murdering and all that and half the time like a really good person, good. The Bible says no one's good, not even one. The only one that's good is God. That's why he says, you want to see my glory? I'll make all my goodness pass before you because it's only me that's good. John also says this. He says, we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. If you remember the passage we just read, as God passes before Moses, he says his name. He says, here's who I am. I am the Lord. I am merciful and compassionate. And he says, I am abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Another way of communicating steadfast love and faithfulness is grace and truth. 
grace and truth is, is John saying, hey, you remember the God in the Old Testament that said, this is who I am? I'm a God that's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We see him in Jesus because Jesus is those things. He's full of grace and truth. We see the glory of God in his grace and in his truth, which is not what we expect of God. If, if, if we could write the story and we would expect God to come down to earth to be with humanity for like a few years, we would not expect he would come with grace and truth. We would probably expect he'd come with wrath, judgment, uh, maybe some bitterness, maybe some, uh, just a lot of anger, uh, maybe some just like swift judgment, just knock some people out, like just need to go immediately. We would not expect God to come to the human race with grace and truth. But he does. Because guess what? He's not like anyone we know. Because he's holy. He comes full of grace and full of truth. We actually see it revealed in almost every interaction he has. We'll see in just a couple weeks in John chapter 4. As Jesus sits down at a well with a Samaritan woman who's not been following the Lord. She's been sleeping around with whoever she wants to. And Jesus goes right to her heart. And he brings grace and truth. He says, hey... I know you've had five husbands, actually, and the one that you're with right now, he's not your husband. That's some hard truth. I know your sin. But he also brings so much grace to her, and he says, hey, we're here at this well. Actually, you know what? Instead of me asking you for water, you should be asking me for water, because if you do, I would give you living water. In other words, I will give you life. I will give you forgiveness. I will give you access to God. I will give you an abundant life you've never known before. Jesus, in this interaction, says, hey, I come full of grace and truth. I don't lie to you. I speak the honest truth, but I also bring a heart of grace and invitation to you and love. That's the glory of God. There's no one like that. Or what Jesus does with Peter, right? Peter's biggest failure in all of life is that he denies knowing Jesus right before his crucifixion, and it fills him with shame. But after Jesus dies on the cross and raises from the dead, he meets with Peter and he essentially tells Peter, hey, bud, I know you sinned and you sinned bad, but you're forgiven and I still got a place for you. He comes to him with grace and truth. That's what Jesus does. It's who he is. It's the glory of God. And grace and truth is ultimately revealed in the cross. Or we see Jesus goes to the cross to uphold truth and justice. Because sin and rebellion against God cannot just go overlooked and washed away in the same way we would never want to just overlook wrongdoing and injustice in our world and just say, nah, it's fine. Jesus goes to the cross and say, the price must be paid for sin and I'll pay it. It's truth on display. But it's also the grace of God to say, I will take your place so you don't receive what you deserve for your sins. I will do it. He was our substitute. And ultimately, Jesus' glory would be his humility. That the creator of the universe would come to be born as a human being. And not just that, but in his human being, he was a servant. He didn't rule over. He didn't have really any social power. He came as a servant to die. And John wants to say, as we go through this story of Jesus, I want you to see that it's the creator God who was in the beginning with God, 
you know, maker of life, bringer of light to all the darkness. It's that God who became a servant to die. And in seeing all of that, what are you seeing? You're seeing the glory of God. You're seeing the revealing of how he is different than anyone we know. And he does all of it to save us. And he continues. Verse 16, he says, From his fullness, we now get to receive grace. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. I like that phrase. You like that phrase? We should like that phrase. Grace upon grace. Sounds like a lot of grace. I like grace. I bet you do too. From his fullness, from all of who he is, God has given through Jesus grace upon grace to humanity, to all who would believe. Now, what does that mean? There's a couple options here. The first one is this, is, is maybe it means that we, through Jesus, receive an abundance of grace again and again and again. That, that in Jesus, as, as he forgives us and pours out his grace on us and, and we draw from that well, there's just more grace to be drawn again and again and again. Maybe it means that. But literally what it says is grace in place of grace. And in context, if you look at what he says right after, right? He says, from his fullness we have received grace upon grace, or grace in place of grace. Then he starts talking about Moses and the law. For the law was given through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So he's saying, we've received grace in place of grace. And then he talks about Moses and the law. So I think what he might be saying is, is this, is that... The law came from Moses, which was a kind of grace from God, but through Jesus, he's brought an even better grace upon that grace, in place of that grace. Now, for the Jewish people that might be hearing this, for the Jewish people, Moses was a rock star. Moses was their Aaron judge, if you will, but like way better, right? Moses was a rock star for the Jewish people. He led them out of Egypt, out of slavery, through the wilderness, all the way up to almost being in the promised land. And Moses was this figure. He mediated between God and the people. It was through Moses that the people of God could hear the voice of God, to know the will of God, the commands of God, that Moses brought the law of God to the people. We don't tend to think of God's law as a kind of grace. We, we, we think law is opposed to grace, and, and I, we understand that. But, but understand what the law did for God's people. It was actually a, a tremendous gift to them. The law was amazing for God's people. It revealed who God was to them. That in his laws, you would see his heart. You would see what he was like. So it revealed God to them. It instructed them about God's will. It gave them blessing if they obeyed it. It pointed them to a savior that would eventually come. It was a tremendous gift to them. But the law wasn't enough. Because the law can't provide the power to do what it demands. This is what Augustine says. He says, the law of God, it provided blessings to law keepers. So if you could keep it, it provided blessing. It provided blessings to law keepers, but offered no help to sinners. So it held out this standard for you from God that said, if you can obey this and walk with the Lord, there will be blessings for you. But if you sin, it offers no help to you. 
It does not give you the power to obey what it calls for, which is why commands will never change someone's heart. No matter how strict the law is, it will never stop people from breaking it. And God's law is so much higher because it's not just about following the rules. God's law actually demands that you and I want to obey him. So how do you make a rule that enforces on someone and actually changes their heart so that they want to obey the rule? No law can do that, right? I don't care how much you obey the, the, the speed limit, right? You don't do that because you just love the speed limit so much and you want to obey it. No, it's just for some of you, you're more terrified of getting a ticket than others. So you're like, you'll comply, right? But when you know no one's around, you're like, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. Or when you're late, it's not that big of a deal, right? The law cannot create desire in us. If anything, it tends to make us not want to obey it more. You know what I mean? Yes, you do. The law is never enough. It can't provide the power to obey it, but grace does. Grace does. There's an author, his name is Steve Brown. He tells this story about his daughter, uh, that his daughter was uh, enrolled in an English literature class at the beginning of the school year. And as she went to the class the first day, she realized, I can't take this class. This is going to be way too hard. I'm not smart enough. Everyone in here is way smarter than me. I need to get out of this class. So she goes home and she tells her dad, I need your help getting me out of this class. And her dad says, of course. So the next day they go down um, to the teacher after class and, and the, the dad says, I need to meet with, you, meet with you and talk to you about this class. And as they sit down, he, he says to the teacher, you got to get my daughter out of this class. It's way too hard for her. She doesn't want to be in it. So please just move her to another class. And the teacher says, can I, can I speak to your daughter for a second? He says, of course. And this teacher looks at the student and she says this, how about this? If I give you an A right now in this class, I just, right now I just lock in, you have an A no matter what happens in this class, you have an A right now. Will you stay in the class? She's like, is this real? You're just going to give, get, looks at her dad like to make sure like, yeah, I'll, I'll stay in the, you're just going to give me an A like no matter what happens? It's like, yeah. So she says, okay, yeah, I'll stay in the class. And she stayed in the class. And the way that the story goes is the teacher says that by the end of the semester, what actually happened is, is that student earned her own A in the class. And the teacher explained to the dad what, what she did later. She says, I, I took away the threat of failure. I took away the threatening power of the law over her in that class, which said, you better perform to this standard. And if you don't, you're not going to measure up. You're going to get a bad grade. It's going to go poorly. You're going to fail. She said, I took away the threat of the law and I gave her grace. And you know what happened? It changed her heart. She wanted to learn English now. And she did. She got her own A in that class. And the beauty of that story is that's exactly how God deals with us. If you have come to Jesus, if you have turned from your sins and believed in him, the Bible tells us that right now you have the righteousness of Christ on you. In other words, you have an A. According to God's standards, he has said, I've given you an A. And guess what? You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You didn't do anything. But I gave it to you simply because you, you believe in me. And he pours out his mercy on us and he gives us his righteousness. So now we, we have his favor forever. No judgment, no condemnation over us. We are loved, we are his, we are chosen. Nothing we can do to make our grade any better or any worse. It's been given to us by his grace. And knowing that 
changes us. In other words, grace mobilizes performance. Performance doesn't mobilize grace. Grace changes us so that we want to live for the one that's showered us with grace. So the law was good for God's people. It did a lot of things, but it was insufficient. Couldn't provide the power to do what it called for. And so in comes Jesus. Because what Jesus brings is way better. You see, the law of God reveals some of God. Jesus comes and says, I'm revealing all of God. The law anticipates a coming Savior. Jesus brings that Savior. The law promised blessings if you could obey it. Jesus brought blessings through his obedience. The law said, here's how to be close to God. And Jesus says, here's God coming close to you. Moses provided bread and manna in the wilderness for God's people. Jesus comes and says, I'm the bread of life. Through Moses, there was a whole sacrificial system set up of lambs that would help take away sin. Jesus comes and says, I'm the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In every way, shape, and form, Jesus is better than Moses. In Jesus' coming, he replaces one grace with a better grace. And this new grace brings God's steadfast love and faithfulness to us. Then John closes this introduction with this, verse 18. He says, no one's ever seen God. What he means by that is no, no one's ever seen the fullness of God. People have maybe caught glimpses. No one's ever seen God, though. But the only God who's at the Father's side, Jesus, he has made him known. So the last thing he tells us before he launches into this life of Jesus is to say Jesus came to not just show us the glory of God, to not just bring grace to us, but he has come to make God knowable to us. He has come to establish relationship with us. Jesus makes God known. It's the claim of Christianity. You want to know what God is like? You want to know what, what he cares about, what his heart is like, what his mission is, what his passion is? You want to know what God is like? Look to Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. Or as the book of Hebrews says, he's the, he's the radiance of the glory of God. This is, this is the claim we make as followers of Jesus. We say, you want to know what God's like? Look to Jesus. It's him. It is God revealing himself to the world, showing he's a God full of grace and truth. See, we usually, we usually suspect that the most important and powerful people in our world don't want you to have access to them because that's how our world works, right? I once walked out of the Staples Center right into uh, Floyd Mayweather and his entourage. If you know Floyd Mayweather, he's a boxer. He's really rich. He walks around the Staples Center with literally like 15 guys around him, like just in a circle. They all walk in a unit. I walked out Staples Center door and I literally almost bumped into their group. And it was this like, reminder of like, hey, you can't get close to Floyd Mayweather even if you wanted to because you'll get dropped. But we, that's normal to us, right? We expect that from powerful, important people. They don't want regular people like you and me to get close to them. That's just normal, right? There's distance, there's privacy, there's security, there's, there's all that, but not with Jesus. Jesus wants 
to be close. When He comes to earth, He doesn't come with protection and privacy and borders and walls and distance. And no, he, he comes with none of it. And He walks around in the flesh and He invites people. He says, come to me. And He does the same to us right now because he, as He ascended back to heaven, He sent His Holy Spirit down here to be inviting us to Him again to say, I want to be close to you. Come to me. I'm full of grace and truth. I'm unlike anyone else you know. And if you want to see the glory of God, just call on me. Ask for my help. I'll, I'll reveal to you the glory of God. So we close with this. I ask you, do, do you want to see the glory of God? We, we, we need help seeing it. Here's what 2 Corinthians says. We'll, we'll close with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says this. Talking about those that don't follow Jesus, that don't believe, here's what the Bible describes as happening. He says, in their case, the God of this world, who would be Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. What does that mean? He's kept them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, which is what he did at creation. John mentioned that here. What he's done, he has shown in our hearts. So those of us that believe, this is what God did. Here's how it happened. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here's what this says. If you want to see the glory of God, you need God himself to open your eyes to see it in the face of Jesus. There's no pair of glasses you could put on or no straining of the eyes you can do to see the glory of God and muster up the strength. It's a spiritual act to where God shines light into the darkness. So you want to see the glory of God? This is inviting us. Call upon the name of Jesus. Call upon the name of Jesus to be saved and he will open your eyes to see the glory of God so that he will bring you from darkness to life, bring you from death to life. So do you want to see the glory of God? Maybe for the first time? Maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time and you feel like, ah, I've kind of even stopped hungering to see the glory of God. And maybe you're reminded this morning of the glory of, of who he is, his presence. Maybe you want to see that again. You want to see his, his grace again, his, his goodness again, his desire to be with you again. Call upon him. Ask him. God loves to show his glory to his people. Let's pray together. I invite the worship team on up. Lord Jesus, We sometimes don't like to think about it. We like to be just plainly naturalistic, that whatever we see is real, and if we can't see it, it's not real. But the truth is you, you show us all throughout the Scriptures that there is a very real spiritual realm. And that when it comes to believing in Jesus, that there, is, um, that there are forces of evil, that, that Satan is at work blinding minds, blinding eyes, from seeing your glory. But Jesus, we know that you have conquered him. 
You have defeated him. And so, Jesus, we ask that in this very moment right now that you would remove the blinders, that you would remove the veils that may be over some of our eyes, that you would give us eyes to see your glory. That right now in this moment, as we come to respond to you, that, that as, we, as we sing, as we listen to you, as we take communion together, all of these things, Lord, that it would not just be this rote activity, but as we do it, God, that you would give us a fresh glimpse of your glory, your set-apartness, your distinctness. Like Moses said, Lord, we want to see your glory. And we know that because of what you've done and what you've brought that we can see it if you help us. So we ask you to help us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.